situation. He took a pitch in the back. He got beamed for crying out loud. We used heart attack. Managers on a major league baseball team don't make decisions. Credibility in this situation is worse than losing your job. What's going on, everybody? Another edition of the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Aloysius Church in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. In a little bit, I'm going to talk about the racial motivations that are set behind the halftime show and why so many of you are pissed off. So many of you didn't watch it, didn't give it a chance, and are automatically judging it, and the exact reason that you do so. There's a history of drug use throughout the uh, throughout the entirety of Major League Baseball, and I think that needs to be chronicalized. And the first thing I want to talk about today has to do with the NBA's latest top 15 coaches of all time. Um you know, there'd be no other talking point than the one exclusion. And when it's all said and done, I'm going to name you five head coaches that should be on this list in place of five head coaches that we're going to take off. So I'll be real quick with this. For those that you haven't followed basketball history, and it was obvious that those that put together this list when it comes to the NBA weren't. There's a guy by the name of John Kundala who coached in the early times and was probably one of the most successful coaches that he had ever seen. And his exclusion off this list is compared to excluding Paul Brown off the list of the top NBA uh, NFL coaches of all time. It's like taking Joe McCarthy off the list of the top MLB managers of all time. Does it speak that we're a little too much in a recent? And maybe people that were doing a research, number one, didn't do enough research, or number two, are too stuck in this time frame to acknowledge the very history of the sport. I don't know. But if you think of the history of the National Basketball Association, you think of the 1948-49 Minneapolis Lakers. You do. Because that was the first recorded season, the first recorded NBA championship, and it actually was the, the Basketball Association of America. So it was a year before they officially called it the NBA. And even if he had not led his team to another championship in his career, you would say that he is warranted of some sort of consideration for the greatest coach of all time. Maybe not number one. But certainly should be mentioned in the top 15. But it goes beyond that. He led the Minneapolis Lakers to a championship in the 1948-50 season. Again in 1951-52 and 52-53 and 53-54. Over the course of the 11 seasons that he was a head coach in the National Basketball Association, he led his team to five championships. And you look at coaches that won five or more championships, why would you not put that amongst your top 15? So that's number one. John Cundela belongs in the list, and I'll let you know who he comes at the expense of in a little bit. But if you think of some of the other top coaches in the NBA, there was Billy Cunningham, 
Billy Cunningham was fantastic over the course of the 1980s as the head basketball coach of the Philadelphia 76ers. Led the team to an NBA championship, but also two other um, championship finals. Had a 698 winning percentage. How do you not acknowledge somebody with a 698 winning percentage in your top 15 amongst the top head coaches of all time? And like I said, you're looking at coaches, a couple, a, a couple coaches that never won a championship that were on this list. So Billy Cunningham is exclusion number two that I have a hard time, you know, really getting behind and enjoying and believing it. You don't have John Cundula, and John Cundula, like I said, you could probably rank top five. So if you rank him top five and he's not in your top 15, then I think you did a pretty lousy job doing your research. Billy Cunningham, one of the top coaches in the 80s, and of course he gets probably thrown towards the back burner because he wasn't Chuck Daly, he wasn't Pat Riley, and those were the top two coaches in the NBA in that decade. But you know, to, to sit back and just disregard Billy Cunningham, I mean, how is he not in your top 15? So I look at Rudy Tomjanovich, back-to-back titles as the head coach of the Houston Rockets. And, of course, Rudy, if you remember, there's a, there's a very good sentimental value to Rudy Tomjanovich as a player, which doesn't have anything to do with his uh, what he did or didn't do as a head coach. But back-to-back NBA championships in 90, 93, 94, and 94, 95, basically controlling the NBA while Michael Jordan wasn't around. Jordan won three championships before that with Phil Jackson, three championships with Phil Jackson after that. It's hard to not acknowledge Rudy Tomjanovich as one of the greatest ever. And, of course, you know the sentimental value, we're talking about him being the brunt of the fist of Kermit Washington in that uh, recorded scuffle and obviously did not look good for Kermit Washington. Kermit Washington was a guest on this program. He spoke about it. Yeah, you know, he feels remorseful about it, but it was it was basically an example of being caught in in the wrong place at the wrong time. There was a lot of violence in the NBA. There was a lot of scuffles and brawls that happened on the very basketball court, and most of it wasn't recorded. So I move on to Alex Hannum. Alex Hannum had a chance to coach for six different teams in the NBA over the course of, what were you looking at, 15 years, 17 years, Um, St. Louis, Syracuse, Philadelphia, San Francisco, Oakland, and of course the San Diego Rockets before coaching with the Denver Rockets. So if if you're a real historian and you want to analyze some of the non-existent teams or teams that have changed cities, you would talk about the St. Louis Hawks, you'd talk about the Syracuse Nationals, the San Francisco Warriors, eventually the Philadelphia 76ers, the Oakland Oaks of the ABA, the San Diego Rockets, and then the Denver Rockets. And this is a man that led his team to three championships, two in the NBA, one in the ABA, You know, 535 winning percentage ain't great, but I'm giving somebody credit that won, and certainly won more than three times. So Alex Hannum has to be in your list of top 15 NBA head coaches of all time. And the last one 
And, and I, I think it was a little close. I think you could say some of the coaches that end up being off the list and then you know a couple of the other coaches that didn't get on the list probably deserve a little bit credit. But I'm going with Tom Heinstone, who we lost in 2020 at the age of 86, but was the head coach of the Boston Celtics from 1969 all the way to 1978, led his team to two NBA championships and over 600 winning percentage. And, you know, you look at some of the other head coaches of that time. Yes, Bill Russell won two championships. Okay. Yeah, you look at some of the other head coaches that are that are on that are, that are short of the list. And I want one of two things when I'm ranking the best basketball coaches of all time. Either an all-time winning percentage. That's where you get Billy Cunningham. And, you know, that's where I get Tom Heinsohn. Or just an all-time winner. John Cundola, five championships in the NBA. And, of course, before the NBA was even the NBA, won the first championship in 1948-49. So I look at those five coaches and I wonder, how did they get neglected? How did they get missed on this list? Now, it's up to you. What's on your mind? You want to bring up a, another coach that I missed? I'll mention the five that were on the list that I'm taking off. Doc Rivers, Jerry Sloan, Jack Ramsey, Don Nelson, Larry Brown. Now, I think they all had great careers. They all are, I think, certainly would be amongst the top 20, maybe the top 25 of all time. And, and I'm going to start out by why I am missing out on Larry Brown. Larry Brown won an NBA championship. And I don't have any issue with Larry Brown over the course of the 27 seasons. He was an NBA head coach. But how many teams did he coach? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine different NBA teams and two different ABA teams. That I have a hard time with his lack of stability staying in one organization. Listen, I love the balls. I love the fact that he believes enough, has always believed enough in his ability that he could bounce from team to team. I get that he probably wanted some sort of control in a lot of places, and this was a reason that he bounced around so much. You look at how many times he left the team after a winning season, and that was you know, a good amount of the time. You know, when he left uh, the Denver Nuggets in 78-79, he had a 5.28 winning percentage midseason. The Nets had a 6.18 winning percentage in 82-83. So this was a very successful coach. I think if I, there was one coach that I would say was probably number 16 on this list, I, I can't put him over Heinzone because I think he just, in addition to winning twice, he, he won a higher percentage of games. And yes, in a shorter amount of time. I get it. But he managed to win two championships. Tom Janovich, I think, was the same thing. Didn't coach forever, but was dominant when he did. And the fact that he won those two championships in between the Jordan, Jackson, Scottie Pippen, Chicago Bulls dynasty has more of a representation when I'm trying to tell the history of basketball. And by the way, when you're talking about the top 15 coaches in the history of the NBA, don't you want to kind of tell the history of the NBA? You know, like I, I look at, and obviously I was in agreement with a lot of the head coaches. Red Arbach, Chuck Daly, Pat Riley, um, certainly, you know, the, the, the great Phil Jackson, Casey Jones, Red Holtzman, Greg Popovich, Steve Kerr, 
Lenny Wilkins, even Eric Spolstra. Eric Spolstra got into the NBA at a young age, and he's had a, a very consistent career. Two NBA championships as a, as a head coach, obviously with the LeBron James, Dwayne Wade team. And you look at, at, at his body of work. And the fact, listen, that he's still an NBA head coach. You know, you're looking at 14 seasons, five NBA finals he's been to. And yes, he's had to rebuild that team from scratch a couple times. You know, before LeBron was there, after LeBron left, got the team back to the finals in 1920. And I know that was, you know, the bubble season with the coronavirus. But he, he got the team to the NBA Finals, a, a team that had a 600 winning percentage but was not seeded very high. They had a great run. They were great in the bubble. They had a lot of great chemistry. And, and to me, I look at this as a solid, solid head coach. But you know, I think of Doc Rivers. Doc Rivers has bounced around a lot. One of the knocks on Doc Rivers has been you know, the lack of consistency. Now, he did lead his team to an NBA championship, which makes me understand why he is on the list. But you're looking at him four different stops, two trips to the NBA Finals, the one championship in seven and eight. He, he had a lot of success with the Boston Celtics. Not so much in Orlando. Of course, there were 1-10 in, in the season that he ended up getting fired in 2003-2004. The Lakers were always kind of the bridesmaids, that team that everybody really felt was ready to take that next step, win an NBA championship, and just get there. And that never happened. And here, we'll see what happens with the Philadelphia 76ers. This is a team with now James Harden, uh, basically replacing Ben Simmons, who wasn't playing for them. I, th I think you're looking at a, a very strong team led by Joel Embiid. You know, you look at Maxi Thibel. Um, hopefully, at some point, you know, you look at uh, some of you know Harden really being a, a factor and a legitimate scorer on that team. Hey, if he wins a championship in Philadelphia, maybe we revisit this list. But Doc Rivers, I'm I'm not ready to put him in there just yet. Another coach that I'm not really loving the respect that he was getting. And, and listen, I'm all about a, a, a lifer. I'm all about that coach that coached forever. And I look at Don Nelson and, uh, you know, the 557 winning percentage over the course of, what, 20-plus seasons, 27, 20-something seasons, 30 almost. Milwaukee Bucks, Golden State Warriors, two occasions. Dallas Mavericks, a, a year with the Knicks. And this, this, this was some teams that probably could have won NBA championships. A couple of the Dallas teams. The 2002-2003 team with a, a 732 winning percentage. And, you know, after he left, Rick Carlisle, Dirk Nowitzki, they win themselves a championship. Golden State. Obviously, it was before Mark Jackson. So that was before Steve Kerr. So Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Kevin Durant were not a, uh, were not a thought at this point. But you're looking at some good teams that he had, and you're wondering why they didn't win. You know, the Sidney Moncrief teams of the 1980s with the Milwaukee Bucks. I'm having a hard time putting Don Nelson in my top 15 since he had a ton of talent and never led his team to a championship. And listen, I was a huge John Stockton fan, a huge Carl Malone fan. I liked the Utah Jazz 
in the 1980s and the 1990s. And there was no more of a stable force in there than their head coach, Jerry Sloan. 1,221 wins, a 600 winning percentage, back-to-back uh, NBA Finals appearances in 96 through 98. And I have the same issue. With all that talent, with Stockton and Malone, basically the entirety of their NBA careers and players coming in and out, uh, 600 winning percentage seasons, multiple times, 780 in 96, 97, zero NBA championships. I have a hard time going all in and saying that this was a top 15 head coach. Now, I think Jack Ramsey gets in there because of popularity. And, of course, we lost Jack in 2014 for a long time, was an analyst for ESPN and did great work there. Won an NBA championship with the Portland Trailblazers in 1976-77. Was a coach of the Sixers. And before Portland, he was the coach of the Buffalo Braves. After that, the Indiana Pacers for a couple years in the late 80s. Was a good coach. But a one-time NBA championship and overall winning percentage of a little bit above 500 just doesn't do it for me. So I look at it. Kundala to me is the biggest miss. I don't know how you miss John Kundala. I don't know how you tell the history of basketball head coaches without the first great one, a five-time champion. Billy Cunningham in the 1980s, his dominance. And then two-time winners, Alex Hannum, Rudy Tomjanovich, and Tom Heinsone, and I put them at the expense of Doc Rivers, Jerry Sloan, Jack Ramsey, Don Nelson, and Larry Brown. So, of course, Matt Harvey is getting a lot of attention now as you think about his reported and now confirmed drug use during his time as a pitcher for the New York Mets, and most notably during his time with the Los Angeles Angels. And, of course, baseball was marred by the very sad and tragic passing of Major League Baseball pitcher Tyler Skaggs. And this happened in season, and this certainly changed um, a lot of people's perception of what they thought they were seeing. Um, To me, there's a history of drug use in baseball, all different kinds. Of course, we could talk about the steroids era. We could talk about um, recreational drugs that were being used throughout the 1980s. And if you think of the use of cocaine in baseball, yes, Matt Harvey's testimony confirms that there's still use of cocaine throughout Major League Baseball. But I think you'd be a little silly if you said that it was up there with the level that it was used in the 1980s. Now, 1980s, if you remember, that was the decade of excess. Not just athletes, not just entertainers, not just people that have a little more free time on their hands, but... You know, the majority of adults were using some sort of recreational drug. Remember, this is this was before um, marijuana is basically legalized in a lot of states. So now we start to see a little bit of a separation between marijuana and somebody that's like, oh, wow, they were using cocaine. A lot of that was one and the same during the course of the 1980s. So obviously Tyler Skaggs, who died because of the use of excessive opiates in the middle of the season, July 1st, 2019. You're watching as his former clubhouse attendant and the Angels clubhouse attendant, Eric Kay, is 
going to trial for his distribution of certain pills. Matt Harvey testifies, says, hey, I used cocaine. I used it with teammates. I got it from, you know, whether it's Eric Kay or somebody else. And obviously the New York Met fan wants to jump into the social media world and make it about them. Oh man, Matt Harvey, dominant pitcher, 2013 All-Star game. You remember in the World Series game five. You know, it's not always about you as the fan. And, you know, you think of Matt Harvey and some people want to make the instant comparison to say, hey, he's another Dwight Gooden, another Dallas Strawberry. And with all due respect to Matt Harvey, I, I don't believe that Matt Harvey was good enough to be on the same level as Doc and the same level as Strawberry. I think his 2013 season was outstanding. He had the Tommy John surgery. He came back. He was very solid in 2015. But outside of that, and I know the, the injury is caught up to him, the thoracic outlet syndrome that he never seemed to really recover from. But if you're saying that drugs and the use of cocaine destroyed his career, I don't really agree with you. I agree. I would agree that injuries from the Tommy John surgery that he proved that he could get back from. But the thoracic outlet syndrome, where was he after that? And, and that's when we're, we're trying to talk about what actually derailed Matt Harvey. We, we want to use excuses for players. Players, yes, they're responsible for their own actions. Maybe up to a certain point, if they're battling addiction, it, it's going to be hard to blame somebody for having an addiction. And we support people as they try to get help and they try to get through things. We did that with Doc. We did that with Daryl. You know, certainly most of the general public was in favor of Steve Howe. When he was given that last chance with the Yankees, obviously I think of Leslie Nielsen and Naked Gun 33 and a third when he says to Ananas Goldsmith's character, I'm giving you one last chance. Not one of those Major League Baseball Steve Howe kind of last chances. And listen, I see the humor in it, but we're talking about something serious here. So when you're talking about drug use and addiction, it's something that is taken seriously. We know it is. We want and hope that those that have addictions are able to seek and get the help that they need. But we tend to use the use of drugs as an excuse. Now, Matt Harvey, if he has a drug problem at this moment, he should get help. If he had a drug problem while he was pitching for the New York Mets, you know, the Mets seem to, at least if you, you hear some of the reports, they, they tried to get him help. But was the use of cocaine the reason that he went from being a top pitcher in 2013 and 2015 to an average and ordinary pitcher to a pitcher that when baseball ends up starting again, you're going to have a hard time giving him a major league contract if you're any team. He made 28 starts last year for the Orioles. He pitched in a less than 128 innings. He was 6-14 with a 627 ERA, a 1.54 whip. He had a good stretch in the beginning of the second half of the season where it looked like things were going a little better. Yes, it doesn't help that he was pitching for the Orioles, the worst team in Major League Baseball, but I'll tell you this. If he's pitching for another team, if he's pitching for a better team, he probably doesn't get 28 starts. And the Orioles, I give them credit for believing in him and standing by him. And basically allowing him to tow the rubber every fifth or sixth day up until his arm gave out. 
And he, he ended up being out for the season. So he made 28 starts for the Orioles. I don't know how many of the other 30 MLB teams or the other 29 MLB teams would have allowed Matt Harvey to make 28 starts last year. So you wonder, you say, hey, is his career over? No, I think there there's going to be offers. And certainly you have a, a plethora of top-level free agents that still haven't signed and you know will start cha- either changing teams or re-signing with their teams after the lockout. But you know somebody like Matt Harvey, you know it's it's worth it to take a flyer on. We haven't seen Matt Harvey as the reliever yet. You know we've 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 heard thoughts of it. You know he was put in a bullpen in 2018 and he was eventually designated for assignment and then he he was a relief pitcher for the the Royals for a couple outings in 2020, which was a year that you know, really didn't go so well for him. He made $10 million in 2019. And usually I don't care about player salaries, but you know, you're looking at somebody that was getting paid for his track record without necessarily proving that he was anywhere close to the pitcher that he was before that. 450 ERA, 111 strikeouts and 128 innings, which is his best K's to uh, innings pitch percentage since 2015. But it wasn't like, you're like, hey, this guy's coming back. And his season with the Angels in 2019, I don't know if it was derailed because of, excuse me, his use of drugs. I don't know if it was derailed because of the sudden death to one of his teammates and rotation mates in Tyler Skaggs. I don't know if it was derailed because the Angels were just such an underachieving team in 2019. But you watch them and you, you look through 2021, I think from a training and pre- preparedness standpoint, he's doing everything to get his arm back on that level. I'm just, I'm just not sure that there's very much that he's got left at this point. Does he have a run in him or a season or two you could try him as a reliever? See if maybe his velocity kicks up? I don't know. But to me, Matt Harvey doesn't strike me as a story of a player whose career was ruined by drugs. Is there an addiction in there? Sure. I'm not going to deny that. And I'm not going to walk away from any sympathetic value that that may have. But I look at him in the thoracic outlet syndrome of 2016 that he never truly overcame. And the fact that from a velocity standpoint, from a consistent standpoint, he's somebody that just has not performed in a series of years. And like I said, you really have to go all the way back to 2015 where he was even a serviceable major league pitcher. 28 starts last year for the Baltimore Orioles was basically a gift from the Baltimore Orioles. They were going to run him out there regardless of what he did. And he had a 627 ERA which says from the Orioles' standpoint, if you couldn't run out a pitcher that could get better results than that, you deserve as many losses as you end up having. So finally, I want to jump on this halftime show thing. And I brought it up a little bit on my uh, color cast show that I did on Monday. You know, you think of halftime shows and what it's really become. It's become a representation of respect respect throughout the world of music and you gotta understand that you know my generation growing up in the 90s and the 2000 early part of 2000s you know had the prime of hip-hop and whether it was biggie tupac dr dre you know later on snoop dogg and eminem 
you know, it, it did have a very good place in the hearts of an entire generation. So there are people like the boomers, I guess you would say, maybe my parents' age, that are naturally going to not have interest in a Super Bowl halftime show that's centered around rap music. And the first thing I'll say is I have no issue with that take. If you don't like rap music, if it's a generational issue, then I don't really have a problem with you feeling that way. You're not going to watch the halftime show because, you know what? Those that are performing are not your cup of tea. You know, I, there may be a certain genre of music that I'm not a big fan of. You know, if somebody's going to go out there and do the hokey pokey for a half hour, then I may try to find something else to do with my time. The issue I have is this centering the halftime show around things that are really racist talking points. The fact that the performers are black isn't a reason to not want to watch the halftime show. And that sounds like such an obvious point. That sounds like, John, you know what? You made probably the most obvious point of your show. Yet, you have a lot of people that are either hiding racial intuitions or just don't want to admit that the reason that they were bothered by the selection of Dr. Dre and his crew to do the halftime show had anything to do with race. If it was about NWA and, uh, you know, killing police officers, I could get that as a reason to not be interested in seeing it. But then you watch the halftime show and there wasn't any sort of sentiment of anti-police. There was no there was no sentiment on uh, you know serious stuff that was really hurting somebody's feelings. Now listen, you could listen to any rap lyric and find something that you could twist and make offensive. If that's your goal, then you're probably going to win. This halftime show was performed well. Do I think it was the all-time best? It wasn't Lady Gaga flying into the stadium. It wasn't Prince. It wasn't Michael Jackson. It was a good performance. A good performance coming from a fan of that genre of music. But my issue, and this is what I want to close the show with today because this is bothering me the most. We're fighting these battles with a strong group of white people that don't want to see blacks succeed whatsoever. And if you look at the accomplishments of Dr. Dre, starting out with a group called NWA, basically letting out his and his peers' frustration over the treatment of blacks in California, which was a legitimate thing, maybe he went overboard with F the police, but it came from the heart and was a representation of something that was happening. The Rodney King riots, police brutality, which was a serious thing in the late 80s and the 1990s. And I obviously know, you know, up through now is still a problem. But he parlayed that into the ownership of a record company, making his own beats where he was able to sell it for millions and millions of dollars. And it honestly is an amazing success story. So, for those of you that say, hey, Dr. Dre is black, and that bothers you, that's why you wouldn't watch the halftime show, that's why if the halftime show was thrown in front of your face, you would find some way to insult it, 
it really was a celebration of a man that really took what he had and built a huge empire. And an empire that, like I said, the music itself may not be your cup of tea, but the halftime show was warranted to celebrate the success of one in a genre of music that hadn't been celebrated before. And you, as the viewer, or the potential viewer, if it was a generational thing, it was a a music not being your cup of tea type of thing, like I said, I got no issue with it. But if you go to Root and say, hey, it was a disgrace to the NFL, it was a disgrace to the commissioner, how do you allow these people... And you'll probably throw the thing and Eminem. Eminem did a good job, by the way. You know, like like we can't see through the fact that you're you like Eminem because he's white and don't like the other artists because they're black. The issue when it comes to race is disgusting, and it, it's a shame that we live in the era that we live in in 2022 that you can't have a Super Bowl halftime show that represents somebody of darker skin color without having to deal with closet racists. And in, in some cases, I'd rather you just make it out to be the reason that you don't like it. You don't like rap music because of the majority of those that sing it are black. If you feel that way, hey, at least it's on the record. You know, you may have you know some treatment. Some people are going to be angry going to piss people off i'm not i'm not so much pissed off if that's how you feel i don't like it i don't agree with the point of view i I wish there was room to coach and educate and maybe get you to see something that you didn't see before but i'd rather that than you're trying to defend and deflect it and go out of your way to put these people down and make it about everything that would make them seem like a bad person to mask the fact that your issue is just their color of skin. We're going to do some uh, college basketball talk on a show that we do on Saturday. And obviously we'll bring up some other issues going on in the world of baseball and sports. Probably not baseball because I don't feel like talking about the negotiations going nowhere between the players and the owners. We're getting to a point where you should, if you're a diehard baseball fan, be concerned about baseball starting on time. Spring training, I'm getting ready to book my flight to Florida. Can't do it unless there's a new CBA. So we'll be back with you on Saturday with another edition of the Past Ball Show. Once again, brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Aloysius Church in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. God bless you, and as always, I'll see you on the other side. Chris Bryant was on the Chicago Cubs roster opening day. I have many leather-bound books. My apartment smells of rich mahogany. Why don't you give it all or a majority of it to the team that wins the freaking World Series? I was going to listen to that, but then I just carried on living my life. I may come out as the biggest Major League Baseball manager apologist. That'll only make someone work just hard enough not to get fired. Because hitters are going out there saying, I'm either going to hit a home run or I'm going to strike out. And if I don't get a pitch that I feel like I could drive out of the park, I ain't supposed to be here today. Especially prospect whores and hoarders are going to be a little pissed off at me when I say this. 